Good morning. All right. Uh, great to be here with you guys, as always. Ohayo gozaimasu, our Japanese um, brothers and sisters. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. And so go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 6. Okay, Luke chapter 6. Um, last week we actually took a break from our study of the book of Luke to take a closer look at Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper. And then we were able to follow up that time of instruction by partaking of communion ourselves as a church family. And I, I don't, don't want to speak for you, but I felt like it was just a great time in the Lord. And I do pray that the Lord ministered to you uh, greatly through it all. Um, and so today, we're going to be back in the book of Luke. And last we were in the book of Luke, we looked at verses 12 through 19 of chapter 6 in a message that I entitled, The Chosen Ones. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember how we studied about Jesus selecting his 12 disciples. Uh, We noted how Jesus, he went up upon a mountain and he spent the whole night in prayer prior to handpicking the 12 apostles that he would use to really turn the world right side up. Jesus called his disciples to himself, and then he went down the mountain uh, together with them, modeling for them what was expected from them as his chosen ones. Jesus had called them to be with him, to uh, go and preach the gospel, to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. And when he went down the mountain with them, that is exactly what he did, using his own life as an example for them to follow. Well, This week, we're going to begin a three-part message that I've entitled, The Kingdom Life. Okay, The Kingdom Life. In chapter 6, verses 20 all the way through 49, we have recorded for us a very famous teaching by Jesus. And we're going to take the next couple of weeks simply breaking it down in an attempt to understand what Jesus was teaching to his disciples and how it applies to us today as we look to follow in his footsteps. And we're going to take our time, and we're going to dive deeply into this sermon. We're going to allow it to really prayerfully penetrate our hearts and our minds, that it may encourage us, that it may challenge us, and that it may, it may uh, enrich us in our walk with the Lord. And so, that's what we have uh, planned for the next couple of weeks. I'd like to go ahead and invite you all to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read through the beginning of Jesus' sermon and our text this morning. I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Okay, Do your best to follow along in whichever translation that you're reading from. Luke writes the following in chapter 6, verse 20. Then he, referring to Jesus lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. We're going to stop right there, okay? A shorter portion of scripture. The next portion is just too big to get into, so we're going to just stop there for this morning, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would just continue to be with us as uh, we continue just to worship through the study of your word. Lord, I ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us through all truth. And Lord, I pray that we would come this morning with great anticipation and with great expectation that we are going to hear from you, Lord. We've opened up your word and your word is active. It is living, Lord, and we trust it to speak each time we open it up. And so, Lord, we are excited to commune with you, to meet with you. And Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us individually, Lord, in the different seasons and situations that we find ourselves in, that this would just be a rightly spoken word, uh, 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 just a perfect timing, Lord. But I think as well, just for us as a church congregation, collectively, Lord, that you would speak to your church and Lord, that we would have ears to hear all that your spirit desires to say. Lead and guide us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text this morning is part of a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples amongst a larger multitude of followers. Now, some believe that this is Luke's parallel account to Matthew's account of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, both Matthew's and Luke's account start off with a form of what we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes. Um, the word beatitude, it comes from the Latin beatitudo, and it, technically speaking, it's not found in the English Bible. Uh, when translated into English, it means blessedness or happiness. The eight sayings in Matthew's account and the four here in Luke's account that begin, blessed are, uh, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, you know, blessed are, okay, uh, describe for us the state of blessedness that is bestowed upon certain individuals. And so both Matthew and Mark, or excuse me, Matthew and Luke, begin their accounts regarding this sermon with a list of beatitudes. And actually, both of them end with a parable about building your life upon the rock with a firm foundation or building your life upon the sand without a foundation at all. However, some speculate that this could be a completely different account that Luke speaks of where Jesus taught the same or a very similar sermon to a different group of people. They think this because of some of the subtle differences in the accounts between Matthew and Luke. Okay? In Matthew's account, we're told that the location where Jesus gave this sermon was up upon a mountain. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 states, And seeing the multitudes, he, uh, referring to Jesus, went up on a mountain. Um, hence, the description of the teaching in Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, you guys are probably familiar with that, right? But in Luke's account, we're told that this particular sermon took place on a level place after Jesus came down from the mountain. Look up in verse 17 of chapter 6. There it reads, He came down with them and stood on a level place. In Matthew's account, we're told that this message was primarily given to the disciples apart from the multitudes. In Matthew 5, it says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor uh, in spirit, and, and it continues on. 
In Luke's account, we read two weeks ago of how Jesus came down the mountain with his disciples. He healed a great multitude of people that had come out to see him. And looking up at verse 17, again, it's plain to see we're told Jesus came down with them, referring to his disciples whom he had just selected to be the apostles and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Luke's account of Jesus' sermon follows immediately after this, presumably with Jesus' disciples and the multitude still gathered around. Matthew's account of Jesus' sermon on the mount covers a lot more topics spans three chapters of material in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a total of 111 verses for the Sermon on the Mount. While Luke's gospel is much more condensed and leaves out major sections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, while Matthew's account covers 111 verses, Luke's account consists of only 30 verses. Also, Luke's account has some stuff added to it that Matthew's account doesn't have. In our text this morning, there are not only mentioned Beatitudes, but also woes. Matthew's account does not contain any of Luke's woes whatsoever. And so, because of these differences, some have suggested that this is a different event, and they give Luke's account of Jesus' sermon, the moniker, the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, you may have heard of that uh, before, because it was given on a level or a flat place. Now, honestly, whether or not this was a completely different event from what Matthew records in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, cannot be determined definitively. I do not believe so. But I tend to think that it is very likely that Jesus gave the same or similar messages on multiple occasions. Now, why don't you you guys know uh, something here, let you in on something. Jesus didn't teach a new and inspiring message every time he sat down to teach a group of people. He taught a message of repentance And he did so over and over again. He taught about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on multiple occasions. He taught about the dangers of the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, okay, and their hypocrisy on multiple occasions. And I think this is important for us to note before we even get into our text, okay? When it comes to God's word and the message of the scriptures and the message of the gospel, it isn't something that we just need to hear one time, okay? Paul writes that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that goes for the first time you read it and the second time you read it and so forth. God's word is always going to be profitable to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, whether it's the first time you read it or it's the hundredth time that you read it. You see, as Christians, as followers of the Lord, we should never grow weary of reading and hearing and studying God's Word and the Gospel message contained within it. Listen, we need God's Word all the time, over and over and over again. Okay? When you come to church on Sunday morning to get into the Word, our attitude should never be, oh, I've heard this message before. Or, you know, oh, I've read this portion of Scripture before. I don't, I don't need to listen or pay attention. Or, oh, man, I, 
I've studied this portion before. I know what it's all about. I could have slept in today instead of getting up early and coming to church, okay? That should never be our thought. That should never be our, you know, in our minds. Listen, you know what? I do hope that you do know what all these portions of, of Scripture are all about, okay? And I do hope that you have read all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but that doesn't mean that once you've read it, that you don't need to read it again. It doesn't mean that once you've studied it, that you don't need to study it again, okay? God's Word is active. It is living. When we open it, we should anticipate, we should expect that God is going to speak to us every time, Okay, it may be that you read something that you are very familiar with. Well, awesome. Praise the Lord. Okay? Let it be a reminder of God's truth in your life. You see, the truth of it is, none of us have arrived yet. Okay? None of us are beyond the point of no longer needing God's word to lead us, to guide us, and to direct our steps. We need constant reminders of the same truths over and over again. Because here's the truth. Oftentimes, you guys, we tend to forget. And we often tend to get off track. We often tend to wander, right? We even have a song about it where we sing, prone to wander, Lord, this I, I fear it, right? That we tend to do that. And so we need that reminder. We need to get into the word. The psalmist declares, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. A few verses down, he writes, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Listen, we need to be in the word constantly, okay? reminding ourselves of the wonderful truths contained within it and being filled with awe each time we open it up and each time we read it, knowing and understanding that it is God's holy word spoken to us and that we desperately need it. Amen? Amen. Well, for our studies, we're going to look at Luke's account somewhat separate from Matthew's account. There is obviously some overlapping material, but we want to look at Luke's account with a fresh set of eyes. And as I've already mentioned, this is going to be what I believe to be, I make no promises, but what I believe to be a three-part message. I've taken the liberty of breaking up Jesus' Sermon on the Plain here in Luke's Gospel into three small sections. This week, we're going to cover the first section of the sermon, a section that I refer to as Kingdom priorities, okay? Kingdom priorities. And then in the following weeks, we're going to look at kingdom principles in verses 27 through 38, and then a few kingdom parables in verses 39 through 49. This sermon that Jesus gives really is all about the kingdom life. It describes not what people must do to be part of the kingdom, For we know that entrance into God's kingdom is based upon grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We become citizens of God's kingdom by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so this isn't a sermon about how to enter into God's kingdom, but rather it is a sermon of what to expect as citizens of God's kingdom. He starts off this sermon with some kingdom priorities, things that are most important in God's kingdom, things that are valued differently in God's kingdom than how they are valued in the world, things that are, well, things that the disciples needed to understand, 
as they followed after Jesus and they joined with him in preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, a simple reading of our text lets us see that there were two parts to this opening section. Verses 20 through 23, Jesus lists out four beatitudes, four blessings, if you will, of being part of and living for God's kingdom. And then in verses 24 through 26, he listed off four woes or cursings, uh, warnings of those who are living for the world's kingdom. So we're going to dive into our text again. We're going to see what kingdom priorities Jesus wanted to get across to his disciples as he begins with the four Beatitudes. In verse 20, he says, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and keep and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. We'll stop right there. Jesus turned his attention and directed these words to his disciples, presumably the twelve that he just called to follow after him and be his very special own, his apostles, okay? representatives and ambassadors of Christ to the world around them. Now, it's important for us to understand that what Jesus is doing here is laying out for his disciples certain expectations. You see, we know from reading other portions of Scripture that the disciples often didn't get it. Okay? They didn't understand what was going on all the time. They had their own ideas, their own preconceived notions about what it would be like to follow after Jesus and to be part of his kingdom. We know that James and, and John, they try to make a power play to be established as number one and number two uh, in the kingdom, right? They wanted Jesus to promise them spots of honor and glory as he entered into his kingdom, and they used their mama to try and secure their place. They sent mama to go talk to Jesus. You know, hey, when my, you enter into your kingdom, can my son's name will be on your right and on your left? Matthew 20, 21 tells us about that. Even after his death and resurrection, they still didn't get it completely as they would ask Jesus even then in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're kind of still got their mindset on like, okay, there's going to be a kingdom and we're going to be part of it, right? We're really excited about it. Jesus had just called these 12 to be his apostles. And Jesus sets out to establish for them some priorities for what it means to follow after the Lord, what it means to be part of his kingdom. You know, perhaps these newly chosen, hand-selected 12 disciples who would be his closest associates, well, they might have become tempted to feel a little puffed up with pride. Perhaps they could begin to think that they were something special. They were, you know, the VIPs in the kingdom. You know, we are the 12 apostles hand-selected by Jesus. After all, Jesus' popularity at this time was still on the rise. Multitudes were still gathering to Jesus. People from all over were seeking an audience before Jesus. And these 12, they were selected as his right-hand guys, as his closest associates. And maybe they thought themselves something special. And, and I don't want to take that away from them. They were special, no doubt. God used them in an amazing way. Okay? But Jesus wants to make clear here at the beginning what was so special about being part of God's kingdom. The disciples needed to understand the priorities of God's kingdom so they didn't confuse them with the priorities of the kingdom of this world. And so Jesus speaks forth these four Beatitudes describing the blessed state of being part of and living after God's kingdom. Now, normally I would jump right into it, okay? But we're going to do something a little different this morning. Before we look at each of these four Beatitudes, I want to look in at and define a few terms 
that pop up over and over again. Normally, I would just bring them up as we go through them, but I'm going to be bringing them up over and over because they pop up over and over. So I just want to one time explain these words to you so that we're all on the same page, and then we'll dive in, okay? The first word I want you guys to take note of is the word blessed, okay? It's the Greek word makarios, and it's used four times in our text. Now, this Greek word is where we get our English word happy from, but this word means much more than simply being happy. You see, being happy is dependent upon our circumstances. When things are going good, eh, we're happy. When things are going bad, we're sad, right? The word happy actually shares the same root as the word happenings. Uh, They are actually very much related. Happenings, uh, or excuse me, happiness depends upon what is happening, Uh, And so this is not what this word blessed means. This word means a whole lot more than simply happiness. The word speaks of the supreme divine favor of God being upon someone, being marked by a fullness from God. It's often described as a joy that is completely separate from our circumstances and often despite our circumstances. We can have joy and this blessed state no matter what is going on. It isn't dependent upon what is happening in our life. We can have the joy of the Lord in our life no matter what comes our way. That's this word blessed. The second word I want to draw your attention to is the word are, A-R-E. Now, if you're reading from the New King James Version or the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, you may notice how the word R is written in italics. Anybody reading from either of the two of those translations? Only Perry, huh? Okay. Well, Perry, okay. They are in italics, right, Perry? They are. Okay, great. All right. And this tells us something important, okay? It lets us know that the word R isn't actually in the original manuscript. It's been added in to help make sense of it in our English language. But the problem with reading it the way that it is, is that it can tend to make you think that this is something you need to do in order to be blessed. Okay, And that isn't what this is saying. I do not believe that's what this is saying. This isn't saying, blessed are you if you are poor, or blessed are you if you hunger, or blessed are you if you weep. Okay? Reading it this way makes us think that God's supreme favor is dependent upon our socioeconomic status, okay? whether or not we're rich or poor, or whether or not we have food, or whether we cry or not. Okay? These Beatitudes, they aren't meant to make us try and be something or to do something. They are meant to remind us of who we are. It is meant to remind us of our status with the Lord. We are supremely blessed with God's favor simply because of his grace upon us. We don't earn God's favor. God's favor upon us is unmerited, unearned. It's all about his grace. And so realize and understand that these beatitudes, these kingdom priorities, are something that we are, not something that we do. Do you understand? Okay, good. This brings me to the third word that I want to highlight that pops up repeatedly in these Beatitudes. It's the word for. The Greek word is hoti uh, or hati. uh, And it pops up several times in the list of blessings as well as the woes in the second section of our text. Now, these are written as causal conjunctions. Okay, if you're not a grammar person, neither am I. I just look it up in a book and it tells me this stuff, okay? It means that they are conjunctions that express the basis or grounds for an action. In English, 
we usually translate this as because or for this reason. And so when we read it in English, we should do so with this understanding. Okay, when it says, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, we should understand that the word for, when it says, for yours is the kingdom of God, can be read as because. Because yours is the kingdom of God, blessed poor is really what it's saying. The R-E-U is not even there. Blessed poor. Because, you're, because of this, then this. Okay? It's giving some of the reasons why we are blessed. Okay? Make sense? Nod your head if you're still tracking a little bit. Okay, good. All right. Wow. Better than first service. All right. <laughs> Let's take a look at these Beatitudes then, okay, these priorities. The first Beatitude states, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so we understand this Beatitude to be, okay, we're looking at that word for, we're going to change it to because. Because yours is the kingdom of God, blessed are you. Because we are part of God's kingdom, because we have a part in God's kingdom already secured, we are supremely blessed with God's divine favor. And this ought to result in us being poor. Now that word poor in the Greek, it means to crouch or cower like a beggar. And it speaks of a position of utter helplessness and complete dependence upon someone or something else. Now, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus taught this similar sermon, he added the words in spirit to this description. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we understand that this poverty, this complete dependence that Jesus is speaking about is a spiritual dependence. We have a spiritual helplessness. When it comes to inheriting the kingdom of God, we are hopeless. We are helpless in and of ourselves. We have nothing to offer that could better our chances of getting into heaven and being part of God's kingdom. Used in this sense, it really speaks of being brought low, okay? of being humbled. In totality, then, we would understand what this beatitude is saying. Because we are a part of God's kingdom, okay? Because we have our place in heaven secure, we are supremely blessed with God's favor, okay? And that should always lead to a result in a humble spirit, okay? Because we know we're going to heaven, we are blessed, and that blessed attitude, that being, ought to result in our humility because it's not about us and what we do, okay? It's about God's grace and what he's already done. Because Jesus went to the cross for our sins and because we responded to the message of his gospel, we are saved. We are part of God's kingdom. We are blessed with his divine favor. And the only result that we can come to is an attitude of simple humility, of realizing, man, helpless on our own. Okay? So thankful, so grateful for God's work in our lives. Well, the next beatitude, it reads, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. The word hunger here, it carries the idea of being in need, uh, of longing for something, for uh, craving or greatly desiring something. Again, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus lets us know that it is a craving or a hunger for righteousness. Matthew writes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this ought to point us to God, right? To Jesus, for he alone is righteous. Okay? The word filled, it speaks of our satisfaction, our fulfillment. And the point is simple. 
our fulfillment, our satisfaction is in Jesus Christ because he alone is righteous. They, uh, so we, as we look at this, we are supremely blessed with God's divine favor and that should result in us hungering for more righteousness, for more of Jesus, for more of the things of the Lord. You see, when we realize that our fulfillment, our satisfaction isn't in the world and it isn't in the things of this world, but in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, it ought to result in us seeking for and longing for and hungering for more of Jesus. When we have tasted and seen that the Lord is in fact good, it ought to create in us a hunger for more of the Lord. It ought to create in us an appetite for the Lord, a craving for more of Jesus. When we, excuse me, we won't want to seek after the world and the things of the world because they just don't satisfy like we know that the Lord does. You know, if you need to eat something that's really good, and you're like, man, this is good, and then someone else tries to give you something else, you're like, I don't want to eat this. You know, you don't want to be snobbish or anything where you're like, I know this is way better. I'm not I'm not going to eat this. You go to a potluck and you have a favorite thing. You go back for that, right? It's like that idea. It's like you taste, you see the Lord is good. He satisfies. Man, I want, I want that. I want more of that. Okay? I don't want that other stuff. That's, that's junk. Right? The third beatitude Luke gives us reads, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The word weep, it carries with it the idea of to grieve or to sorrow Uh, to wail or to cry out loud. And it really kind of amounts to this complete brokenness, where you're just broken down, you've got nothing left. And the word laugh, it means to express joy, of course. You guys know what that means, to exhibit that joy that we spoke of that isn't dependent upon circumstances. And so we understand the point that Jesus is making here. Because we laugh, because we do express great joy, because we do have the kingdom of God, and we are supremely blessed, that should cause every one of us to weep and to be broken for those who don't. Because we know we have the kingdom of God, because we know we're going to heaven, that causes great laughter, great joy in our lives. Anybody here excited and and, and joyful because you're going to heaven? I hope so. Okay, I hope you're happy about that. Right? I hope that brings you joy, right? But listen, it also ought to result in us weeping and crying. It also ought to result in a brokenness of heart for those that aren't going to heaven, for those who are lost. Because these are the people that Jesus came for. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus had a compassion for the lost. It broke his heart to know that there were so many destined to spend eternity separated from him. We see him weeping over the entire city of Jerusalem because they failed to recognize him as their Messiah. They did not know in their special hour, in their day, what made for their peace, that Jesus was there to offer them peace with God, but instead they would end up rejecting him and it broke his heart and he wept as he entered into the city of Jerusalem upon that donkey. Because of the great joy which we now have and will have for all of eternity, we are supremely blessed. Make no doubt about it. 
but it ought to create in us a brokenness for those who aren't headed to heaven. And we shouldn't be so complacent when it comes to the lost and their plight. We shouldn't have the mentality, well, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, I don't know about them. <laughs> we ought to be brokenhearted for them. And it ought to drive us to the place where it matters enough for us to do something about it. We ought to think, man, this guy I know, he doesn't know Jesus. And he's destined to spend eternity separated from him. And I need to do something about it. I need to make sure he knows and he understands the gospel. That he knows and he understands what's at stake here. Listen, we can't be the Holy Spirit. Okay, We can't make people believe. But let me tell you this, we can be used by the Holy Spirit to speak into the hearts and lives of peoples the wonderful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ in hopes that they will respond to the work of the Spirit in their lives and that they will get saved and that they will secure their own place in heaven. The fourth and final beatitude that Jesus spoke of involves us being hated. It's not a really exciting one. It reads, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and Cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And so we get this idea. Because we're living for Jesus, we're living for the Son of Man's sake, we are supremely blessed. We're blessed with God's divine favor. And the result of that is that certain men will hate us. They will exclude us. They will revile us. And they will call us evil. This is the point that Jesus is making. When we live for Jesus Christ, there is no doubt that we're blessed. But it also will stir in some a hatred toward us. And so what are we to do in those situations? How are we to respond when people hate us? When people revile us? When people exclude us? When people speak evil of us? Well, Jesus tells us what to do, how to respond. Take a look at verse 23. It reads, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. When people hate us because we are living for Jesus, and make sure you understand that that, that's why, right? They don't hate you because something else, right? Um, When they hate you because you're living for Jesus, okay, our response ought to be to rejoice, to celebrate to leap for joy because we are living for eternity. Our eyes are upon the prize. We are headed for heaven and that is what we are focused upon. And we don't let the things of this earth, the people of this world, rob us of our joy in the Lord. Nothing that man can do to us will change the fact that we are headed for heaven. We don't let it bother us. Paul wrote the following perspective in Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. These persecutions, these ill feelings, these actions towards us are nothing in comparison to what awaits us in heaven. To the church in Corinth, he wrote, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The key is to keep our focus upon Jesus and the eternal. The trials, the persecutions of this world, they can't shake the fact that we are headed for heaven. And when our focus and our mind is upon heaven and the eternal, we are able to rejoice, we're able to celebrate despite those who hate us, despite those who revile us or exclude us or speak evil of us. I like what Peter had to say. 
kind of in a different way, he said basically the same thing. I want to share it with you. It's from 1 Peter um, chapter 4. Peter said it quite well. He said this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. God is glorified when people see you living for his name's sake. And so don't let the haters get to you. Okay, they're going to hate. You just keep on loving Jesus. You just keep on living for him, knowing, the, knowing that you are supremely blessed, that you're headed for heaven, and that God is glorified when these people come against you. And so there you have the four Beatitudes, the four priorities of the kingdom. It involves the fact that we are blessed. We are showered with God's divine favor, his amazing grace. And those blessings in life, they ought to result in a few different things here, okay? It ought to result in a humble life, a place of humility spiritually, a place of complete dependence upon the Lord. It ought to result in us hungering for more and more of the Lord. It ought to result in a brokenness for the lost, a heart to see them get saved. And it ought to result in God being glorified in our trials and our persecutions. Humility, a hunger for Jesus, a heart for the lost, and God being glorified in everything. Those are the priorities that we see here in our text. Well, let's quickly look at the second section of our text that deals with the four woes that Jesus shared. Verse 24 says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did the fathers to the false prophets. All four of these woes are given in contrast to the four blessings shared in the previous section. They correlate perfectly by way of contrast. In contrast to the blessing of the poor is the woe of the rich. In contrast to the blessing of the hungry is the woe of the fool. In contrast to the blessing of those who weep is the woe upon those who laugh. In contrast to the blessing upon those who are hated for Jesus' sake is the woe upon those who are loved by all men. That word woe, it actually speaks of anguish and grief, of horror and dreadfulness, of misery and calamity, distress. What Jesus is saying is that only anguish, grief, misery, and distress will be yours and you will not be supremely blessed because your only concern is the kingdom of man and not the kingdom of God. You're more concerned about the things of this world than you are the things of God and of heaven. And because of that, Jesus basically says, only misery, anguish, and great grief awaits you. And we're not going to spend much time breaking these down because the point's really simple and really the same uh, in each of them. It's really the exact opposite of what we've just read, okay? Instead of humility, it leads to pride. Instead of hungering for more of God, it leads to an insatiable appetite for this world. Instead of a broken heart for the lost, you only care about yourself. Instead of seeking God's glory, you look and seek after the glory of man. And so we're not going to do word studies on these things because we already did word studies on all these pretty much, okay? It's just the opposite. 
And really, you guys, if we were just to sum it up real fast here, the point that we need to make here is quite simple. Listen, it's, it's all a matter of priorities. What is more important in your life? Are you more interested in living for this world and the things of this world, or is your focus upon the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to live for the kingdom of man, or do you want to live for the kingdom of God? It really is that simple. And, and it's a choice that needs to be made. But guess what? Jesus actually gives us the answer, okay? It's not a hard choice, but in case you're wondering, you're not so sure. If you go to Matthew's account in the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of it, he tells us the answer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us there in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. As we seek first the kingdom of God, He takes care of all the rest. He takes care of us. He'll get us the things of this world that we need. Okay? We don't need to worry about them. We don't need to be focused upon them. Keep your eyes on Jesus and He will take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the answer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, and we're really ex- I'm really excited, Lord, to just continue in this um, incredibly impactful sermon that you gave. Lord, we just kind of got into the very beginning of it here, and I pray that uh, you would tarry, that we would continue to get into it and continue to be enriched by it, Lord, and challenged by it. Lord, as we look at these priorities, these kingdom priorities here, we realize, Lord, that these aren't things that we need to do. But these are things that we are because of what you've done for us already. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your supreme, divine favor that showers upon us, Lord. We are humbled, Lord. We are undeserving, unworthy. But Lord, we are so grateful. Grateful, Lord, that you love us and you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, for us. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as we go about our day today and our week, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us. Lord, that these things would be seen in us. Not that that we're doing them or we feel like we have to show these things, Lord, but that people would just see us and know and say, that person's a believer of Jesus. That person's walking with the Lord. That person's different because of what you've done in our lives. And maybe they even say, I hate that guy because he loves Jesus. And Lord, so be it. May people know unashamedly that we love you. And Lord, I pray that you would just do a wonderful work in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. That people would see us and want what we have, Lord, and that we would be excited to share it with others. Lord, that we would see those around us who are lost, Lord, and that our hearts would be broken for them. And that we would do whatever we can by your Spirit's leading and guiding, Lord, to reach out to them, to see them be reconciled to you, to secure their place in heaven, that they too might enjoy your amazing grace, that blessed state we have. 
of your divine, divine favor upon us. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Lead us, guide us, give us your eyes to see where we might bring honor and glory to you. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.